Coop. What's up, Zach? Something happened to me the other day. Somehow, it, a lot of things happened. A lot of things happened. A lot to me. of days. And you're an eventful guy. Thank you. But this specific thing happened to me. Okay, tell me. Have you ever been driving? Should I close my eyes for this? No, no, no. You can keep your eyes okay, Should the listeners? Uh, not if you're driving. I was going to say, if you're in the car driving, listen to this <laughs> podcast. Speaking of being in the car driving, listening to a podcast, I was doing that the other day. Okay. I was driving down the freeway here in Dallas, and I'm in like the far lane, and this lady next to me in the lane to my left. Okay. So I she's guess, in the fast lane. Uh, no, so you're in the, I was you're far in the, right. Okay, okay. Far right. You're she the, was kind of. You're in the, the slow person lane. Yes, I. You know, okay. you know me. Right. <laughs> I play it safe. And so apparently, this lady needed to take this next exit. Uh-huh. And so, as you would, you put your blinker on and you get over into the next. Right. Lane. That's natural. But can uh, we get an age? Can we get an age estimate? <laughs> an age estimate. Lady? I mean, mid thirties. Oh, okay. So she's like, I was imagining big, poofy. Gray hair. <laughs> no, she was like okay. just a young lady. So not rankly. No, no rankles. Okay. And so she does this, but a key element of this is that she did not look. She mm. didn't look. So she thought the world revolved around her. Yes. It, it is see. her fishbowl okay. and we're all swimming. Gotcha. And so she starts to come over and it's one of those like you'd see from a car scene where I'm like here and if we get any closer, I'm just going to fish Taylor out okay, and she's yeah. going to spin out. Mm-hmm. So I'm like right behind Just so her. you listeners know, he he was holding up hand <laughs> and you're like here. What do you mean? He was showing me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It so Cooper sense. knows. So she's coming over and I'm like all I can do is honk the horn. Which is – there's actually – I was going to say there's a tool in your car yes. to help avoid these situations. Yes, because if she comes over anymore, we will get in an accident. Right. And that's, that's what neither of us want. Right. And so, politely, I give her a little, you know. Okay, yeah. And she gets, like, swerves back over in her lane. <laughs> like, dramatically? <laughs> Just like that. Yeah. So then, I'm like, okay, we're good. We can keep driving. And so, she slows down because she needs to get into that lane because she needs to get over into uh, and take the exit. As that we hear a, an ambulance, the driving, ambulance by. driving by. That was not a sound effect we added. Yes. So, we don't get in a wreck. But she slows down. So, she has to go behind me. And so, I'm passing her. Uh-huh. And I just like... I glance over. Right. I wasn't giving her the stank eye. I wasn't right. throwing my hands up. You just wanted to know what you were slash who you were dealing I with. I was wanting to see if there's big poofy gray hair. Right, 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 right. So I look over and she is screaming at me, like throwing her hands up. Like was there a so specific in. finger involved? <laughs> there was not a specific okay, finger, but I'm okay. sure there were specific words okay. that I couldn't tell. Thankfully, there was two glass. We were six feet away, plexiglass mm-hmm. okay, in between again. us. Thank you for enacting social distancing. But she also didn't have her mask on. In the car by herself. Oh, that's, that's probably a good call. <laughs> yeah. So she's yelling and screaming, and I'm just like, what did I do wrong? Right. How is this my fault? What in the situation did I do wrong? Fault? Honestly, you should be thanking right. me because if I wouldn't have honked at you, you would you would have been yelling at your insurance agent <laughs> because you were gonna owe me a lot of money right. for the damage you did to my right. car and your own car. Right. So the problem is I we might just as a society have gotten soft. Kind of fragile. I'd agree. But why is the horn such a trigger for so, right. so many people, people? People get angry. Like, I, we need to change that. They think that. that you like are questioning their heritage right. or like do you, like speaking heinous words against their mother or something it's, like that. It's like, like that's not what the personal. horn means. No. It was to save both of our lives. Right. right. I'm I mean, a hero. You're a hero. <laughs> I'm not a hero. Maybe that's what Kidding. she was saying. She maybe, was yelling, can I have she, your autograph, you hero? <laughs> she might have been. Was she? That's crazy. Then she threw her hands up, not yeah. having them on the wheel. Yes. Yeah, so, which is like, oh, another. She, you should have honked again. <laughs> Get your hands on the wheel, woman. Ten and two. Literally. But I was like, this is so wrong. Yeah. 
Honestly, you've been wronged, man. I was wrong. You're coming in wounded, I can tell. <laughs> Thank you. I just wanted to get that out. And you know, you know what helps with offensive horns? I would love to know. Having horns that don't have offensive sounds. You know what I mean? Like there are some there maybe, are some maybe my, horns. Maybe the horn in my car is like intimidating. You know what's not an intimidating? The horn in your car. The horn in my car. <laughs> Coop, what does the horn I sound drive like? A 2013 Kia Soul and I'm proud. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so of that car. You are probably the most proud Kia Soul owner ever. I like do you know how people have the Jeep wave? Yeah. I do the Kia wave. What man. is the Kia wave? It's where you just wave when people are driving by in a Kia Soul. No one ever waves back. Uh, no one looks for it. It's just we're working on our, our Kia culture. You need to look up a Kia Soul. It kind of looks like a, uh, a toaster on so the So you'll remember because there's a couple commercials from back in the day with hamsters in the car. Oh, that's actually, yes. That's actually the car. I forgot about those. That's the car what that I song were they singing? Uh, it's uh, I think it's this or that or like it's something like the black sheep. You or wanted something. this? You wanted that? Like that? Uh, no. No. Probably not. Well, no, it's not. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you drive a Kia Soul and your horn sounds like. Um, well, it actually reminds me of a, a childhood show, Zach. Really? And uh, one that we might watch do in you, school. Do you know, does the word frizz mean anything to you? <laughs> Frizz. You're gonna need maybe, to elaborate. Uh, maybe Miss Frizzle. Um, with the frizz, no way. With the frizz, no way. Yeah, it's the magic school bus, Zach. It um, was. Uh, maybe you remember when just a glowing halo would appear above your elementary school teacher <laughs> when she would wheel in that TV on the cart. Yes. And there would be a uh, magic school bus episode that you're gonna watch. And so, yeah. for reference, we actually have a sound clip of the magic school bus because this is exact. I mean, literally exactly what my. Uh, what my horn sounds like. So yeah. play it, Zach. Here we go. Wait. Yep. This is like, this is nostalgic probably for a lot of people. I mean, it is. Cruising on down Main Street. Wow. Main Street, dude. <laughs> I mean, when you hear that, you're like, this is the best day ever, best teacher ever. It's probably about to be like Christmas break right. or something. So like my, the half day. The claim I'm going to make is that my horn is the best and that the creators of Kia. Right. I don't think it's an American. I actually know it's not an American made oh, brand. I just got my battery changed because and the uh, the nuts were in meters or millimeters and really? not in inches, huh. which is just very inconvenient. That is inconvenient. But uh, basically, it's it's a nostalgic reminder of uh, back to your childhood. Hey, follow the rules. Right. So if I, I as you're saying, if I was in your car and that lady was coming, she would have. She would have. She'd been like, like Miss Frizzle. Miss, no she way. Literally would have asked. Yeah, literally, she would yeah. have said like, "Do you want to drive through my veins, my bloodstream, in your, in <laughs> yes, your soul, or, or in my pie?" Exactly, exactly. <laughs> that I'm baking. If you don't know the reference, go back and watch the Magic School yeah, Bus. It's, It'll it's change worth your life. a watch. But anyway, I think what the point is: either less intimidating honks, or let's just re hashtag revolutionize the horn. Hashtag. Let's start that. Hashtag revolutionize the horn. Film film a video of you honking at someone. And post it on your social media and tag us. And say, I Hashtag. wasn't being mean. I was saving your life. Right. Or just a friendly beep beep. So like, and then yeah. wave. Yeah. And then what if everyone started just. I know. Down the highway, you pass someone, you just honk and wave. Yeah. It doesn't have to be deeply personal that someone no. honked at you. It can be a greeting. It can. It can be, hey, get out of my lane. We're right. about to crash. You know, it can be so. It can be, hey, look, there's a Bucky's over there. I didn't want you to miss it. I don't know right. if, you know. So. It's like aloha. Yes. It can mean hello or yeah. goodbye or other things. Yeah. Aloha is the most versatile word. It is. It's like the horn. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, don't take a horn personal. That's right. If you're driving like an idiot and you get honked at, hey, accept stop it. Stop being an idiot. <laughs> stop being an idiot.
Welcome to the Next Generation Leader Podcast, where we believe great leaders are listeners, especially during their youth. Good leaders learn from their successes and mistakes, but great leaders learn from the successes and mistakes of those who go before them. I'm your host, Zach Funderburg, here with my co-host, Coop McCullough. Fresh out the key of soul. That's right. How we doing? Doing good, man. It's just a great day. It is actually a beautiful day here in Dallas, Texas. Another beautiful day for another episode of the Next Generation Leader Podcast. Couldn't agree more. Yes. Today, we have a great episode. No cold call. No. Yeah, we did not. Everyone loved that. I know. Thank y'all. Thank you, guys. Please share it. We got more hits on that than we ever have. Any other episode. So. It might have been Bob. It might have been the, the length of episode. We're yeah. still determining. It, anyway. Or, or Monica probably did something fancy in post that we didn't realize. Sweet, sweet Just Monica. faithful Monica. She's our receptionist. <laughs> yes, if you don't know Monica. Hey, Monica. Thank you. Thank you. She's so, she'll probably edit that out. She probably will. She's, She's so, so humble. humble. Yeah. Anyway, we've got a great episode. Dare I say it's one of my... Favorites. Favorites. Oh, Zach. With the frizz? No way. It It is not Miss Frizzle, but it is John Choate. Close. Very close. By close, we mean not. Not at all. John is a former Navy SEAL, and Miss Frizzle was not. Was not a Navy SEAL. So we connected on LinkedIn a few weeks ago, and I reached out to him, and I was like, John, you're a Navy SEAL. I want to learn from you because I think Navy SEALs are just simply so cool. Yeah, epic would be a good word. Epic would be a great word. Legendary Hard as nails. heroes. Yes, they eat nails for breakfast. That's crazy. He talks I know. about that. He doesn't talk about that, but like off air, he right. was like, dude, bowls of nails every morning. Wow. Delicious. Anyway. <laughs> his dentist is just <laughs> Dennis, yeah. frustrated. Yeah. Probably uses his horn a lot. A lot of crowns in his yeah, mouth. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so oh, I call him. And so we talk on the phone like before the interview to kind of talk through what we'd want to talk about. And he just like... He starts asking me about what our podcast is built on, like, why do we do this? And I said, because I think we need, as a generation, to listen more. We yep. need to grow more. And he just starts going off. And you're like, wait, wait, wait. And I was wait, like, wait, wait, I have not pressed record yet. Right, right, right. <laughs> and he is going off about how young people aren't listening. And he was giving me these statistics that were insane, that some study had been done to say that the average person in conversation knows what they're going to say in response to the person they're talking to seven seconds within their talking. Wow. So within seven seconds, you know what you're going to say. So the rest of the time, you're pretty much just waiting practicing for them to your speech, yeah, practicing, refining and waiting for them to run out of breath so you can refute an attack. Wow. And it's like, that is crazy because we haven't fully, we don't fully comprehend what people are saying, internalize it, really soak it in, and then develop a response based yeah. off that. And I think that's something that we need to get back to. And we talk a lot about like this cancel culture and like now we have to have safe spaces on college campuses where you right. can say things that aren't offensive. Right. And he talks a lot about also this, uh, the contrast of differing ideas and how if we can create a safe space for differing ideas to be together is when we can move towards progress. And so we just have to be able to listen to each other. We have to be able to conversate and not take offense when someone hits you with a horn because you're, Mm. you're moving into their Mm. lane. You know what I'm saying? Coop? Mm -mm -mm. I I know what you're saying. Cause you, you just ranted about it. I did. I'm I'm on the same page as you. I've been ranting a lot today, but it's a great episode. I learned a lot and I think there's a lot we can learn, take from and apply to the way we talk about issues. We're in a crazy political time where you can be divided in, in many different ways and really, uh, not take it personal when someone doesn't agree with you. Yeah. And it's like, you, you don't, you can yeah, talk about it. It's them. similar to a horn. A disagreement <laughs> is not a claim against you as a human being, right. right? Like you can disagree with someone and I do disagree with people. Yeah. And we've still, disagreed. Zach and I have disagreed and yet here we are. Yeah. Sitting across the table with, with blunt cakes in between. Blunt cakes in the middle <laughs> and a spherical ice. I was going to say cubes, but they're not even, they're cubes. not cubes. They're ice spheres. spheres. Anyway, any hoosies. Yeah. But I just see like, that I think is is uh, exciting for us to get to hear from this guy as he's talking about similarly to the way the horn is 
right. seen as offensive. Disagreements are now seen as offensive, which they don't need to be. They don't. They can really move you towards growth if you approach them well. And that's what we learned how to do in this episode. So I want to get into it. Here we go. Uh, without any further ado, here's our episode with the John Cho. Sweet. Well, John, thank you so much for being with us and, and taking some of your time out of your day. You got kids at home doing school. It's probably craziness behind the camera, but thank you for being with us. I want you to start by just introducing yourself. Who are you? Kind of what's your story? What's your path to get to where you are today? I oh, appreciate it. Well, th- thanks for the opportunity to be here, Zach, um, and for uh, the effort and reaching out. Really, really neat. Um, enjoy your podcast. Admittedly, I hadn't... Uh, heard of it before. And then now I find myself just grinding through all the different episodes. So <laughs> well, I appreciate really, that. Really good. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my name is John Choate. Um, I guess I can give like the quick 60 second snapshot on it. I yeah. Give from, us the, give us the spark notes. What do you got? Yeah. I give a, uh, I come from a long line, like uh, several generations of, of lawyers. Uh, most of them um, went to Harvard in one way, shape or form. And that just didn't resonate particularly well. Uh, so in my uh, early high school years, like many folks in or around my age, I read a, um, a book that came out called Rogue Warrior, which was written by uh, Richard Marcinko, the founding commanding officer from SEAL Team 6. Uh, I read the book and basically came to the conclusion of why would somebody not want to do this for a job? Right. And so uh, kind of sifted through everything, figured out. Uh, I was incorrect. My analysis was wrong. Um, I still lucked out anyhow that the easiest way to get to that was would be to um, uh, go to the Naval Academy if I could get in and then get a SEAL billet from there. Uh, so that, that's what I ended up doing. Um, barely graduating. I graduated 923 out of 957 in my class. But you graduated, which is all we need to know. Right. Almost the anchor man. Like that's the guy right. It's last in the class is called the Anchorman, and they get paid a buck by everybody else in front of them. So it's almost not a bad goal to go for. No, it's not. I mean, look, if you're going to be down at that end, it's a lot better to be the last as opposed to like uh, nine. Almost right, right, right. But the um, uh, so so what uh, went uh, finished SEAL training with Bud Class Two Eighteen. Um, I was the officer in charge of that class. I went to SEAL Team Three after that. Uh, very, very fortunate to be part of such an amazing community and specifically an amazing command. Um, my platoon was the SEAL platoon that was immediately deployed after September 11th. Mm. So uh, when 9-11 took place, so every SEAL platoon, you go through an 18 month training cycle workup at right. the end of those 18 months. And by the way, there's a little flex in this, but this is a general concept. At the end of those 18 months, you then have about three to four months of downtime before you deploy overseas for six months. I see. Uh, but during that, that that downtime period in there, you um, you're called C1 status. Like if World War III to were kick were to kick off, you can go forward deploy early. Right. right? So we happened to be the the C1 platoon when 9/11 happened. So we were supposed to deploy in December. We ended up going up wheels up. Um, shoot, almost 19 years ago to the day. Mm. Uh, like flew out of um, San Diego, uh, right up into um, into uh, Kuwait. We were there for a little bit before we moved down to Masira, Oman, to what was then the secret air base there, and then bounced up into Afghanistan in late 2001 and was there through Easter weekend of 2002. Um, so I do like to reference myself as a, as a GWAT or OG. Um, there you are. So to speak. Come on. Um, 
And then, uh, so came back, um, soon, you know, soon thereafter, ended up leaving active duty. Uh, I went to go work for a great company um, that was doing some stuff with the intelligence community. And uh, we were doing penetration tests. So we were paid to go around the United States with a team of us to really break into critical infrastructure sites. So mm. water systems, airports, seaports, you basically find out where there is uh, their vulnerabilities there. Right. And then you write a report afterwards. But if you think about it constructively, it's a really neat opportunity to get paid to go around with a bunch of other team guys and break into places. <laughs> yeah, it's not a bad job to start out. <laughs> no. Uh, and then I started my first company, a security company still around to this day called Persincto Group. Um, we started as a, a, uh, a tactical and a security training company. Um, since 2007, we have the largest basic and advanced combat skills training contracts for the East and West Coast SEAL teams. Right. So we put through, um, you know, several hundred students a year in anywhere from three to five week courses of instruction. And that soon thereafter, that company morphed into a commercial division, uh, which was, uh, you know, high net worth individuals and other folks asking, hey, do you perform security services? So we got probably 20 or so fairly large fortune 500-ish clients. We perform array of services around the world. Mm -hmm. um, I was recruited in 2010 to be the CEO of a private equity held portfolio company. Um, that was an interesting tap dance with all of the Wall Street guys and the right. investment bankers. Um, ran that all the way through to exit four years later. And then I went also to go work as the uh, uh, one of our private clients with Steve Wynn, uh, owner of Wynn Resorts, or yep. that was for the, for the former founder and owner of Wynn Resorts. Right. So he made an offer I couldn't refuse to come out and head up all security functions for Wynn Resorts. So I went out and did that for a couple years. Uh, out in Las Vegas, literally that finished that five weeks prior to the Mandalay Bay security shootings that took place. And, um, and then since then, my wife and I, and uh, the kids, we moved back to Charlotte, and we got a management consulting company that runs as well as a interesting um, tech startup in the hospitality space that's a uh, kind of slowly grazing its way through um, kind of the Series A aspect right now. Right. Uh, I guess, academically, I have a uh, bachelor's in history from the Naval Academy, uh, a master's in national security studies from Cal State San Bernardino. I have an MBA uh, with a finance focus from Columbia and an MBA from the London Business School um, with a focus in strategy. Hmm. And um, yeah, man, that's it. <laughs> there you are. There's your life story right there. Well, I mean, a wide range of experiences that make the man we're sitting in front of today and we get to learn from. And, and we do have a topic we want to get to. But before, I think everyone hears of, of Bud's training and like what you go through to be a SEAL. But really in that, like what makes it different or what sets it apart from just any sort of training exercise that makes it, when you finish this, you're not just going to be, a better looking guy, you're going to be a seal. What makes it different? You know, so first of all, if, if, if any one person can answer that with absolute accuracy, they'd be a quadrillionaire. Right. Um, and, and the thing is there's roughly, you know, I think I'm going to give you a ballpark figure. There's probably roughly 15,000 total seals like th that have gone through buds since president Kennedy formally founded them in January of 62 right. to the present day. Um, and if you ask any one of those 15,000, everybody's going to have a materially different answer. Right. 
Um, but I, I will give you what I think that my take is um, in order to answer your question. I do not think that it is about, uh, you know, heart and grit and tenacity. Like, if we go through the, these kind of five different aspects right here, and I'm just going to pull up some notes because it kind of helps me walk through this. Of course. Like, it, you know, if you talk about, um, you know, prerequisites of getting through buds, mm-hmm. well, the, I come up with five of them. You got to have certain physical abilities, right? Right. I mean, you got to be able to swim. Right. Though, though, though that would be pretty funny, though, if you showed up like, yeah, I'm, I'm not a strong swinger, like arm floaties on. <laughs> right. But yeah, yeah, you can't be narcoleptic, right? You can't fall yeah. asleep at everything. Um, right. You know, this isn't meant to be offensive to, you know, any folks out there that are colorblind, but you obviously have certain, like, you know, cut the green wire. And you're like, oh, they're both gray. Like, yeah. Um, but, you know, the other kind of qualitative pieces, you got to be tenacious. You got to be a quick learner. You have to have thick skin and you, we can, I can go into an entire different like discussionary piece on that. But, but yeah. what I mean by that is you can't go sideways every time somebody is criticizing you about something. You may mm. not like the method, but the underlying message doesn't change. Right. And you got to be resourceful. But if I take, if I rack and stack all of those things, like you got to have certain physical abilities, mm-hmm. tenacious, quick learner, thick skin and resourceful. Here's the newsflash on that those are all required for anything worthwhile in life that mm-hmm. that is not like uh, a monopolized by the seal teams or special operations or whatever else i mean try to be a parent like and, and miss one of those like right work particularly well right especially the narcoleptics piece yeah especially the martin narcoleptic or the thick skin <laughs> right, right. Like, uh, i mean it, it it doesn't work i believe that it is predicated on one simple component and so you have statutory requirements Right. They're very simple. Look, you either make the run times or you don't. You make the swim times or you don't. Um, but the life is filled with statutory requirements. You either right. get the GPA or you don't get the piece of paper. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, the flip side to that, though, is that I, I really do believe that BUDS is predicated on raising everyone's level of self-awareness mm-hmm. with the understanding that it is, you have to make these requirements But as we grind through this process, the whole purpose of this is that you must become self-aware, not not, not in a subjective way, in an objective way. What are you good at? What are you strong at? But equally important, what are your shortfalls and shortcomings? And the reason why is because it's it's the essence of Murphy's Law. Uh, And what I mean by that is that, you know, there there is no perfect being. They just don't, they, they don't exist. There's no, you know, this garbage of like, I ain't got time to bleed. You know, the right. guy that's out there, it doesn't work. They're also the first ones that end up like quitting. But, right. but what it is, is that I think their mantra is we do not expect perfection. We expect you to meet high standards. All right. But equally important, we expect you to know yourself and share yourself with your teammates, because those things that you're not so great at, even the deeper seated ones that you really try to hide, given Murphy's law, they will materialize at the least opportune time. And somebody is going to die because of that. And that is not worth your ego piece. So either get on board, understand that there is no perfect and and everybody has some shortcoming, some vulnerability, some aspect. You may already be aware of it. Make no mistake, buds will absolutely ferret it out and find out what you are. Because the buds instructors are are brilliant geniuses. 
and their job is not to be um, sadistic. Anybody can do that. Right. Their job is to ferret out what is Zach's little underlying thing right there. Not to rub his nose in it, but so that he becomes aware. And then what is he going to do to fix it? Mm. So I, I think that that is really the, um, the piece. And most folks, um, self-awareness is rough, right? Right. And, and it, it is not an easy thing to swallow, but a necessary thing to swallow. And that's the reason why you have, I think, the average passage rate since January of 61 in SEAL training is, uh, I think it's, what is it, 16.1%. I mean, it's not, it's not high. Yeah, that's crazy. A lot of people drop. And I think that's a huge part of it. Where, where is there kind of a connection there to leadership, direct leadership in the, the self-awareness piece and making sure the people that you're leading are self-aware? Because obviously the tactics might have to be a little different from a, a guy who's a training SEALs to just a CEO of a company. But knowing that you struggle in this area, I need to make sure you know that because you're self-aware, because there's stakes here. It may not be someone's life at the the standards that you are at, but our company is at stake here or your job is at stake here. So I want you to become self-aware. How do leaders do that well and be able to point that out and make sure that the people they lead are self-aware of those issues? You know, that, that, that's a great question. I second to the point that I made before. If you can answer that, like that, then you have literally the leadership management consulting company kind of bar none. Like, right. I mean, that's what it is. Because there are really few subjects that attract more voodoo analysis today than leadership management consulting. I mean, and I mean, there are so many folks right. particularly from the military, but even more specifically from special operations that continue to drop these Yoda like conclusions. And, you know, and much of it is just kind of regurgitated garbage. I mean, it's literally bumper sticker consulting. Right. And what I mean by that is that, you know, when, when people say, you know, here, let me pull up my notes here. Like, um, the, you know, the, the, the pursuit of excellence or the underlying piece is never quit or, you know, um, all you have to do is take all of these bumper sticker kind of concepts and what makes them silly is take what, what the counter position, what the contrapositive of them are. So, you know, if somebody says, well, one of the things that we do in this particular military element or that we focus on in this particular service aspect is, you know, we empower our people. Well, as opposed to what? Enslaving people? Right. Like, you know what I mean? Or, um, you know, you got to build trust amongst each other as opposed to what? Dating doubt? Right. Like, you know, uh, uh, never quit. As opposed to what? Always quit? Like, it, 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 it just garbage. Now, to bring this back to the question that you specifically answered, the, the good leader would never ask anyone to do any of his, his or her subordinates to do anything that he or she is not willing to do on their own. Right. The problem that I think that you run into is that in order to create a culture where self-awareness and then sharing that in a protective kind of uh, ecosystem within any type of a company or organization is predicated on the nominal leader or the head themselves also being self-aware. Hmm. That is one of the issues that is run into is that it's very simple. Like you would never ask somebody to say, well, tell me what all your shortcomings are without right. the leader first and foremost saying, so let me show you what mine is. And, and I think we talked about this before. I have a, what we refer to it as the reverse resume. So at the expense of sounding crass, you know, like a, a resume is a two dimensional brag sheet. I mean, right. literally, of so course. if you look at it, it's, it's, here's my title and then all the little bulletized information underneath is how brilliant I am and I saved this much money and I grew this much revenue and whatever else. In my of course. Life. Right. Well, the problem is, you know, what it reveals is suggestive, but what it conceals is vital. 
right? Mm-hmm. And so what we make people do um, through the hiring processes in our companies and what we've consulted for others is called the reverse resume. So you, you take your own resume and you, you make the very, very leaders, the CEOs, the managing directors themselves first, take their own resumes, keep all of those, those line items in there, the titles and the positions that they've held. They delete all the bulletized information underneath, and then they have to fill in what they've concealed about each one of those positions. You know, so another point being, I'll, I'll use my undergraduate and then I'll give you another piece. So undergraduate, you know, for me, because college resonates with everyone, right? Right, of course. To, you know, nuances of a certain industry. If, if I say, you know, I went to the Naval Academy, I was a hunting memorial honor scholar through the Naval Academy Foundation, part of the NCAA Division I water polo team, and one of 16 selectees of 104 candidates for a SEAL, a BUDS training billet. All right. It sounds great. Now, the flip side that if I fill in what I've concealed, I graduated 923 out of 957 in my class. Right. I played one season of intercollegiate water polo due to an unsatisfactory grade point average per NCAA standards, literally. Like, right. And I also stood 177 days of restriction for a whole variety of conduct defenses. I mean, it turned it out that I'm not not like some big, great, you know, uh, I'm not a big rule guy, I guess. Right. <laughs> You know, or it's like when I talk about my first company, like, yeah, you know what? And I've also, I've also been sued before by mm. other shareholders in my company too. All right. Mm. Now they ended up losing materially because what they, what they claimed was patently incorrect and wrong. Right. But I've been through that particular minefield. I know what it's like. So you have to have the very heads, the very leaders themselves first create this and think about the balance that that allows for the rest of the organization, as opposed to somebody at the top being, you know, tech theoretically in, you know, um, without error. It's like, no, the reason I'm here is exactly because of those mistakes. I've tread through the proverbial minefields. I have scraped my knees and bumped my head and everything else. And I am still here nonetheless to be part of this. I need you to understand that and have the same degree of self-awareness and comfortability within our organization, our team, whatever it might be. Right. I think the misconception a lot of times with leaders is that we can't, we have to hide everything that is something that might flaw what people think of what we what we look like. And in reality, people learn so much more from your mistakes or your bumps and bruises, where you fall down, where you failed, where you've been sued rather than just learning about the good thing, the revenue that you build. And, and so I think the reverse resume is something that I'm really going to hold on to just from what you said there, that that is so important. And it definitely starts from the top because if the top's not doing, you can't expect anyone else below you to do it. And, and so that, I think anyone listening needs to hold on to the reverse resume and really put that into to practice. Yeah, but I think even like bourbon or wine does help when you're writing <laughs> up your own reverse resume. I mean, right. Because what you need to avoid the piece that um, that are kind of the so the so called cute aspects to it. Right. It's getting down to the real meat meat of it and everything. Yeah, and it's not just self deprecation either. It's it's like what did we learn from? No, it's not self deprecation. Like there's a material. You know, we had somebody right in there that's been like, yeah, you know what? I've been I've had two DUIs. Mm. Now I haven't had any in the past. You know, not it's not me. Not I haven't. (laughs) Yeah. Person, but you know, I haven't had any in the past twenty years. Right. But I did have them two decades ago. 
And mm-hmm. I've learned since and everything like that, okay, that's superb. And that takes a lot of credence to be able, a, a lot of kind of self-power um, right. and ways to be able to convey that. Um, and, and those are really, that's the key important thing because again, it goes back to, there is no perfect being. There is no Christ-like figure on this particular mortal plane. Okay? Right. So the You're not gonna find one. Are, it is our our failures are what create and what make us. So embrace them, okay? But there's right. that balance. There's also failures because one is pushing or or mistakes because somebody's pushing the envelope. And then there's failures just out of like brute negligence or idiocy. And mm-hmm. it allows you to kind of sift through those too as well. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. And I think it really brings out a lot more than just what a resume uh, provides about a certain person that you're trying to hire. So kind of the general what we want to talk about, it goes back to even self awareness, if we really get into it, self awareness and being able to listen when we were on the phone a few days ago, uh, we were talking, you're asking me about what this podcast is about, why did I start it? What do we uh, what do we do? And I, I was going on my little tangent about how I believe that my generation has lost the discipline to listen. And to really listen and to really process what you're listening and to learn from it and then apply it. That's a whole, it's a whole process that I think our generation is somehow completely lost. And you seemed very passionate about it. And I seemed very passionate about it. I was like, well, let's just talk about this. And and you pointed me to an article that was very, it's very interesting about the fact that people take only seven seconds to know how they're going to respond to what you're going to say before you even finish saying what you're saying, seven seconds, and they know how they're going to respond. So where does this problem come from? Kind of start out there. What is this problem? Why did it happen? Where did it come from? <laughs> uh, I'm not going to make some friends on this one. I mean, I think <laughs> this is what happens when the education of an entire generation is premised on self-esteem. Of course. Right? Yeah. I, I, I'm just calling what it is. And it's not to sound like some old codger. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a young Gen X. All right. I, like it is what it is. Um, so, you know, anybody wants to throw out, oh, the boomer or this or that or anything else. Well, first of all, you're more than welcome to come and see me face to face. Of course. But I don't think many of our listeners are going to take you up on that. (laughs) But, but no, but, but it it is, it's the, you know, it's the, when it's premised on self-esteem, are you okay? Are you safe? Are you offended or whatever else it is? There's no clash. I mean, the, the, all of our world is built on dynamic tension. I mean, it's what Mm -hmm. gravity is, right? Right forces here so if you don't have that and then everything is brandished under um this kind of self-esteem well i'm offended i i don't like the way that you're speaking to me i don't think that you're taking care of what i'm doing then everything becomes about me it's it's a filtration process and so what that results in is it results in this environment and the study that you know we did talk about and that you briefly referred to right now you know it is um, and, and again, I know I'm remiss in getting it to you. I, I'm trying to sift through. You should see how awful my file organization is on my computer. I understand. I understand. But, you know, it, it, it's a journal of psychology that conducted a study that's specifically in the United States alone. So it's not... Um, it's not broken down in between different ethnicities. It's not, it doesn't, it's not North America. It doesn't include Canada. It's in the United States specifically in the past decade, give or take a few years that the opposite of speaking um, is, is generally and typically is listening. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's what it should be. Yes. It should be in the past 10 years, specifically in the United States, it has devolved. It has become waiting, mm-hmm. waiting. And, and there's actually two kind of forks that are derived from that. Either the first one is it's waiting. It's really 
I mean, admittedly, it's waiting for the person who's speaking to shut up. Like, so you're right. going through the process of smile and nod. And I under, I'm, I'm pretending like I'm listening to you, but I'm not really listening. I just want you to be quiet or to end because I've got to go check the email or pick the kids up or I've got other things to do. Okay? Right. So it, it, it's um, to use kind of a, a well-termed place right now. It's, it's, it's kind of like virtue signaling that you're listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, then, and then the second fork is that if you're not just waiting for the person to be done, it is that the average American, from the moment that somebody starts speaking, it takes the average American seven seconds to develop whatever their response or retort or input is going to be. And they are literally, they're quite literally just waiting for the person speaking for their lungs to run out of air. Right. That, that's all they're doing, just so they can jump in and be like, yeah, but blah, 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 and then, you know, fill in whatever, you know, white noise that they want to put into place. Right. So that's why we're, we're so inundated with all these different communications mediums out there mm-hmm. is the WhatsApp and Viber and Facebook chat and Instagram and TikTok and this and that and then email and text message and, you know, VPN on and on and on. We just keep creating more mediums to communicate. Because all we end up doing is yelling louder because nobody's really listening. Mm. Yeah, that that makes so much sense. Even just the way that you put it there, that people aren't listening. And so they we're creating more ways to talk through screens because we don't have to necessarily wait for somebody to, to finish breathing or finish their statement. We can just say all that we want. I don't really care who's listening. I'm just going to say it because it's my opinion. And you should listen to me because I'm entitled to you to listen to me, which doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that, that- I think actually you make a great point that um, I'm just thinking of with the statement you made right there. Actually, that is very much in many respects, social media is a hostaging component. I'm able to go ahead and inject something out there that if you're foolish enough to read or or consume or whatever else it is, it's, it's a passive win. Ha ha. I got my statement out. Right. You know? Yeah. It's uh, it's pretty crazy. It just forget if it's factual or not. It's my opinion. And my opinion is what matters and you should matter. And I think it goes back to something you said at the beginning, this generation is raised on, are you safe? Are you offended? Are you okay? And I was reading even something the other day of, it's called the coddling of the American mind. Have you heard of that book? It's a fascinating book. I on, but I, I do like the title, though. I know. It's a good title. It got me, and I read it. It's a great book. Uh, <laughs> the Coddling of the American Mind. And it talks in there, and it tells a story about this principal who had heard about something going on in the playground about some about bullying. And, and I, we understand we can talk about bullying as a different deal. Um, but there was no physical harm ever happened. And he, he writes an email to all the parents saying that they, were, they weren't safe, that these, these kids were not safe. And it seems like there's been a switch into where now words aren't safe. And so we get into this cancel culture and people are canceled because what they're saying, it's, it's affecting my safety as a, as a human. Where do you feel like that falls into, into play in this? Well, I, I, I think that you answered the question right there, and I would agree with it wholeheartedly. It, 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 is, it is part, it is woven deep into the tapestry of the you know, so-called cancel culture or anything, which be, the issue with that becomes is that there is no exchange of competing ideas. I mean, what is there lost is. By, by having something like this is, is the scientific method is, is what is completely done away with. And the scientific method is fundamentally fundamentally about disproving one's own theories. Right. And that, that, that's the reason why it exists, which is that you take your hypothesis and then spend the time trying to prove it wrong. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which is, which is actually, you know, 
not to go off on a side tangent here, I promise I'll bring it back around, but I mean, that is what I believe what one of the strengths is that comes out of the US military, certainly special operations and definitely the SEAL teams, is that, you know, and when they're playing 25% of their time spent on planning what they're going to do, but the 75% is spent on what's called the adversary order of battle. It, it, it's spent on what if it doesn't go the way that we planned it? What, what right. if, you know, if then what? It's, you know, the things that you do not directly or approximately control, the contingency aspects. Anyhow, I mean, the, the issue that you run into with the, it's the underlying problem that we have in the country right now is that if we cannot have an exchange of ideas and an exchange of ideas is predicated on people actually listening to each other, right? then you end up uh, at a stalemate. And truth mm-hmm. be told, like in a democracy, when, you know, I'm, it's, it's relatively often I'm asked the question, what do I consider as the biggest threat to our country at this point in time? I think people are trying to ferret out some type of a specific, you know, uh, a nuclear component or weapon WMD aspect or something like that. And I, I, I typically respond and wholeheartedly believe our greatest threat is parity. And what I mean is that when we're deciding presidential elections by, you know, a couple hundred thousand votes or, you know, we, we, you know, we get nothing through in a democracy, a democracy dies when it's stalemated, when there's no forward movement. And if we just go through these two and four year iterations where one party gets and then the next party gets and the next party gets, you make these incremental moves forward. It's literally one step forward, one step backward. You go nowhere. Um, And we've got to figure out a way beyond this. The problem that I believe, and obviously you can see then where I lean, is that the cancel culture is that and it, it is a hostaging situation. It's a terrorist situation. You will accept what I say or I'm not listening to you at all. Right. Okay. Which, well, which isn't the competing uh, exchange of competing ideas. It just cancels that out completely. No, that's the problem. That's the reason why it doesn't matter what the underlying message is. Hmm. Whether you agree with, you know, principle or component ABC one, two, three, I won't do it in principle because, b- because you're not allowing for the exchange of ideas. Right. You're not allowing for the exchange of ideas. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's the way, you know, an extraordinary, some of the most extraordinary teachers I've ever had, or, you know, I did a couple years at law school too, as well with the Socratic method, right? But it's like, well, go ahead and take a position. I'm going to take whatever the counter position is for the sake of the Socratic method, not because I believe in what I'm saying, right. in order to try for the stimulation of ideas. Somebody is going to stand up and talk about, and rightfully so. I mean, this is patently true how Hitler is the worst person ever that the modern world has ever seen, or, or right. perhaps even the ancient world, right? Okay, we, we know that. We all agree with that. But somebody for, for stimulation of ideas might take the position, well, he's also one of the greatest orators that the world has ever seen, or he was mm-hmm. able to take a country that was completely disheveled and turn it on its end. Okay, well, that might be true as well. He's still awful, right? right. You know what I mean? But, but you can't, if, if, if you shut out that secondary piece to it, then, uh, then everybody's just working in kind of unproven superlatives, right? Right. And there's no progress with when just one idea is, is canceling the other idea and there's no exchange of competing ideas. I love the way you put it, the exchange of competing ideas. There's no way to move forward uh, without it. And I think a lot of times we believe, we, and we truly believe that if someone voices their 
opinion that we have to cancel it for ours to be true in the sense. So how I would ask you, how do we, or what would you say to the generation who in a debate or if they're in a conversation, they want to hold true to their ideas because they believe them to be true, but how do we go about it listening? And so we can take pieces from other people. Like how do we go, but without losing like weakness, we feel like we're losing ground if we agree or if we actually listen. Cause I think that's a real issue too. Cause if I'm not speaking over you, if I let you get your ideas out, someone might believe that's true. And I'm, I'm starting to not believe what I actually think is true. Does that make sense? It, it does. I mean, that, that comes down, that ushers in a whole different topic, which goes back to the ego aspect. Right. right? Which is that like, well, well I have to, if, if I'm, if I'm right, then you're wrong as though it's a, like a non-zero sum game type of an engagement. I mean, uh, I don't know if you ever listened to Ben Shapiro, but you know, kind of one of his, one of his superb, like kind of lead in quotes that he always has. And it's unarguable is that two things can be true at the same time. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) And, And so when people are engaged in different iterations, and I'm actually trying to pull up this, um, this great quote I found today from uh, Haruki Murakami, right? Famous Japanese philosopher says, always remember that to argue and win is to break down the reality of the person you were arguing against. It is painful to lose your reality. So be kind, even if you are right. Hmm. Right now, I think that's a great point. Right. There has to be some type of scale that tips some extraordinarily in one direction, maybe just a preponderance, 50.1% of the weight of the argument, whatever it might be. Okay. So now we come back to down to, is it the method or the message? Right. Is it what's in the envelope or how the envelope is addressed? See, mm-hmm. the, the problem with the cancel culture is that there is th- what's, what's addressed on the envelope is you will accept or, or nothing like, right. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. It's a systemic piece. People have to want to be able to be challenged. But all of this is part of the so-called tapestry that we talked about before. When people, when, when, when their education and you're brought up, it, it, everything is premised on self-esteem. And then you incorporate the ego associated with people as they navigate through young adulthood and into their first professional areas and so on and so forth. And then, um, you know, all of these other causal components which, 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 by the way, are patently unfair too, right? Right. Well, you are not X, so you don't understand what I've gone through. Well, you know what? There are plenty of people who are exceptional marriage counselors who've been divorced like five times. Right. right? You know what I mean? Like, um, so, you know, I don't, you don't have to burn your hand in the fire to know like how to make a good campfire. Right. So how as leaders do we create a culture in the environment we work or wherever we are that fosters this, uh, this ability to challenge ideas and this ability to have civil discourse about competing ideas in order and for the goal of progress? How do we foster and create this, this pressure cooker of, of ideas? Well, the, the first thing that you have to do is that you have to, it, it's interesting because I'm now going to use a word that I dislike or a phrase that I dislike, but is necessary for the, the question that you just posed, which is that whatever the ecosystem is, so it can be a church congregation, it can be a, uh, a boy scout or girl scout troop, it can be a company, is that you do have to, you have to um, have it established as a safe space for that particular ecosystem. Right. A safe space 
that is defined as a place where the interchange and the exchange of ideas is going to come from. I mean, that's really what the root point of innovation is. It's taking pre-existing widgets, things, items, concepts, and stacking them, deconstructing, taking pieces out from one aspect, applying it to another and putting it together, right? You're right. not necessarily burning whatever the underlying widgets or the process is on the backside of it. What you're doing is you're cannibalizing parts of it in order for something that is much greater. But you have right. to establish that. And that's the reason why you see the rallying cry of culture, culture, culture. Culture is so important. It, it is absolutely important, okay? Right. What's, what's it, people miss, I don't, it's not fair to say that people miss. No, they don't. But, but uh, let, me, let me define this. You, you are either going to be proactive or you're going to be reactive as far as it comes to a culture, meaning that you are either going to take uh, hold of the reins and you are going to create and establish a culture or make no mistake, a culture will materialize. Right. Right. So there's no vacuum. So you, you either have to control it absolutely and define it with specificity. What is the type of culture that you want? Mm. Right. Like we, 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 and once it is defined and once it is established, and this really comes through kind of rack and stack review pieces, how do you want it to be? Do you want a very hierarchical, don't argue with me, I'm the Lord and master of all, everything that goes on in this company, and uh, I just want a bunch of kind of minions beneath me doing my deeds? Okay, I mean, that's not a great culture, but if if that's what you want, fine. Right. will resonate with an interesting crew of people that (laughs) think that they will, you know, go ahead and uh, do well in a situation or environment like that. Right. Got to be defined. And then you work backwards and then you put into place the mechanisms, define them. How is that? How can we establish this culture? And then you got to be very careful on vetting on who you bring in. Mm. And that's the reason why I say when it comes into a reverse resume piece. Right. I mean, look, if you were to Google, if I were to ask you the question, Zach, right now, um, any job interview, have you ever been asked the question or perhaps you've interviewed other folks? You ever been asked the question, can you tell me what your greatest weakness is? Okay. I've been asked, yes. Yeah, and, and what are the answers, or what do you hear? For just generally? Yeah. Oh, gosh, I don't even know. They, there's a lot of pride, or even like, and even like the, the specific things, like numbers. I'm not good at math. Yeah, I'm not okay. good with something, so, so you know. a little bit better and stuff, but I mean, generally and typically, the responses are something like, sometimes I'm too committed to perfection. Uh, you know, sometimes, yeah. I give, sometimes I give too much money to nonprofit organizations. Like, right. It's just garbage. Like, and if you go and you Google, how do I answer that question? If I'm asked that in an interview, the first 10 billion hits are like absolutely unequivocally do not admit like a, a weakness. Right. Take a strength and thinly veil it as a weakness. Or what does it tell you to do in the alternative? Now it says, or perhaps what you can do is kind of control the conversation and talk about how when something went terribly wrong, but the brilliance of your corrective action and getting the train back on the track. Of course, it's so manipulative. Yeah, so, so the problem with that though, is that like, like Zach, if you're asking me that question in an interview, 99 out of 100 times, you're not asking me specifically like what the granular weakness of mine is. Really, 99 out of 100 times. You're not. The purpose, right. the root purpose of the question is what you're trying to do is say, hey, I think we have something here, John. Can I be frank with you? Mm-hmm. This is the first kind of trust fall, right? You know what yeah. I mean? And, 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 and what I'm able to show you and display to you is self-awareness. 
Mm-hmm. And, and, and if I poison it by saying, yeah, Zach, sometimes I'm just too committed to perfecting a work-life balance so that, you know, I can do blah, 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 or whatever else it is. It's garbage. I mean, yeah. I, it, it's insane. So it's trying to ferret it out. And that's one of the ways that you do with a reverse resume. And by the way, the way that we have the companies that we consult for that do it, after all of the executives, the C-suites, and the middle-level managers, every single one of them has filled out their own reverse resume. Hmm. And then you know what they do? They laminate them. They put them on a little ring clip. And as, as, as prospective employees come in, you know, they're in their suit and tie. They think they've done all their due diligence. We're getting ready to, uh, I, I know how to answer all these questions. Right. The very first thing is they say, here is your resume. Here's the blank one we've printed for you. Fill in your reverse resume. And they yeah. say, what are you talking about? And you say, here are the reverse resumes of every executive in this company that you're trying to hire. Take your time, read through them. You know what I mean? And yeah. truth be told, less than half of prospective employees won't even do it. That's right. Yeah, that's crazy. But that's really when you get down to the nitty gritty of what of who someone is and what value they're going to bring to your company. Are they willing to admit their mistakes, Admit willing to admit where they fail truthfully, or are they going to still manipulate them to sound like something that's a strength in, in, in form of a, of a weakness? I think the reverse resume, that's something we keep coming back to, but I love it. And I want to go back and clarify something you mentioned of the, the word and term that you had said that... Uh, you said you didn't like is a safe space. And I think we see those popping up on college campuses all over and not in the way that you had explained it. And what you had said is a safe space where it is safe to exchange ideas freely without being canceled, without being shouted down and being able to move towards that, that period of progress because we're, we have competing ideas and civil discourse. What we see on campuses now is where, the, the term safe space is seen as a place where one group can, can express their ideas without having to worry about someone else coming in. Does that make sense? Oh, Have I, you I seen that? Yeah, it's ridi- oh, I think it's ridiculous, but no, wanting to clarify that statement. Hijack the term safe space. Exactly. And, and I think that is so pivotal and wrong in, and it's, and it's going to slow us down. Like you had said, we're just moving one step forward, one step back, one step forward, one step back. But whenever we're in this safe space of, of civil discourse and being able to have competing ideas, what are ways, and even like we're on a video screen and you're really good at it, it's making me feel like I'm listening to you. But how do we go a step further and whether it's, uh, it's body language, whether it's the way we, the nonverbal communication, do we make sure someone knows we're, know we're listening to them genuinely and at the same time actually be listening and what are like steps we can take that, what do we take away from this? How do we make sure people know that we are listening to them? So I, I don't know how you know that people know that you're listening to them, but, but you bring up a really, really, I'm taking tons of notes here just so you know, because I'm learning a lot like listening to the question strings that you're asking. So thank yeah. you for that. Of course, um, do my best. So the, when it comes down to listening, it is a symbiotic relationship because the point being is that somebody can be the world's greatest listener. Right. Literally listening what's going on. And if the one who is delivering the information is just all over the map and incoherent and non-logical and everything else in between, at some point in time, the listener's fuse does burn out. Right. right? So that's the reason why. I mean, I'll go back to some of the more granular pieces that are derived from the military. I mean, it's the reason why they use gravity codes and everything. But 
Um, an acronym that I, I was taught very early on in, in what was the Special Warfare Communications course, it's an acronym called ART, and it's Artful Communication. And it's about you as the communicator, as the one who is saying something. Whatever is going to come out of your mouth, these three characteristics need to be, it needs to be artful. They need to be checked off. So the ART is it must be accurate, it must be relevant, and it must be timely. And the point being on that, to use a completely fictitious kind of example, is like if you're my commanding officer, if you're my ground force commanders act, like I would never call up on the radio and say, hey, there's some bad guys over in that general direction. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I, I would say like, uh, you know, Wicked Eagle, this is Sand Bandit. There are 12 Al-Qaeda in the open 1,500 meters northwest of my position. How copy over? Right. See what I'm saying? So it's accurate, it's relevant, and it's timely. Okay. Now, if one is communicating in that way, and then there is an active query at the end. You see how you, you, you ask the question, do you copy over? Like, cause I, I, I'm, it's a touch point. I need to know that you got my last transmission. Right. And then go respond back with copy out or, you know, whatever else, double click, key up your mic twice, you know, whatever it might be. Okay. But the point is it's an active piece, which is, the, which is why, you know, at the end of meetings, when people say, um, Hey, so are we, are we all good to go. Right. Kind of this pro forma garbage, because what does everybody do? They give thumbs up. They're like, yeah, we're good to go. And then you walk outside of the meeting room and you turn to your closest colleague, like, what the heck are we supposed to be doing? Right. And, and, and the, the problem with that is that that's the culture is not established, mm -hmm. right? As opposed to a culture, which is we are not leaving this meeting room until somebody asks a follow on question as far as whatever it is that we just talked about. Right. Now you, now, you, now you create a culture where you're like, I just want it open. Like, let's get it done. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's great. Yeah. So, so back to that point is it the one who is delivering the information needs, needs to be artful. Now, mm -hmm. just as a side item here, it is very often that one of those three items is missing. Okay. And, and the, the one item that is very often missing is the timely components to it. Mm -hmm. But then what you need to do, because the cover-up is worse than the crime, is you got to be overt and fill it in. So I could say, Zach, um, we just found out that uh, um, Smiley's just opened up an ice cream shop downstairs. I know that you're a huge ice cream fan, and uh, they're giving out free ice cream all day yesterday. I should have told you this yesterday. Right. You see how I'm, you see how I'm filling in like the timely component so that it's not like, why didn't you tell me this yesterday or what the heck happened? It's a recognition and knowing. And so it's just checking off those three. All right. Yeah. So as far as the, um, the, the flip side to this, it's it, as long as people are being artful in their communication, it is not elegant and it is absolutely true, but it is a trainable piece is that you have to shut up. Yeah. And, and the teaser word that is there is that listen and silent are spelled with the same exact letters. Hmm. Okay. I've never realized that. They absolutely are. Because That's cool. Well, yeah. If you think, of, think about what a 911 operator does. Right. Hey, Zach, 911, what's your problem? All right. Yeah. And, and then usually if somebody is, you know, if you have some EMT there, they're like, 
uh, got the call. There's a car accident right here. We've got three vehicles. I've got one person bleeding out, one person unconscious. Da, 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 da. An EMT is trained how to be a- accurate, relevant, and timely in the information. Right. 9-11 operators are trained on how to choreograph people that are under duress from giving them accurate, relevant, and timely information. What is your problem? I don't know. I don't know. Somebody's in the house. Okay, ma'am, are you in a safe space? Right. Go to your room. Do this. Talk to me. What's going on? Right, you know. Right. And they, it's a great balance between being um, artful in the communication. You can't ask somebody to be a good listener if the rest of the world are crappy communicators. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it does. It starts with uh, it starts with how you communicate. And I love that artful. Is it accurate? Is it relevant? And is it timely? Those are three things. There's so many people just talk just to talk. It's like this has nothing to do with what we're doing in this organization. You just want people to hear what you have to say. And so is your, is your uh, information, is it accurate to what you're doing? Is it relevant to what you're working on? And it, is it in the right time? Is it, was it information that was supposed to be said yesterday, maybe tomorrow, or is it timely in, in its communication? Uh, John, as we land the plane, just want to ask you one more question off this topic of listening. What advice would you give to your 20 year old self? Uh, look back at 20 year old John. What would you say to that man? Um, I would, there's probably two things. Uh, well, there's, there's probably a lot of things. I mean, I don't have regrets, but you definitely have rudder directions that you would shift yourself. Right. right? That we could learn from. Yeah. Um, I would say that I definitely, um, would have taken my, uh, my, my, my science and engineering courses, uh, and my comp sci stuff more seriously. Mm. Um, I, I really do wish that I did that. Um, yeah. Uh, the which is an unfortunate thing because I don't like being held hostage by things that I don't know. Like right. uh, like with this tech startup we're running, you know, on the whole network engineering side of the house, they're like, oh, you know, we need twenty more flux capacitors. And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, right. I guess like you know. Yeah. Uh, um, so I guess I guess that. Um, and I wish that I would. I would have had no control over this at all. Uh, but it would have been nice to have gone to the Naval Academy during a four year period when we actually beat army in football. (laughs) Yeah. That would change the game of your experience at the Naval Academy. I would have pushed that one year to the left or one year to the right. But uh, other than that, I mean, look, superb institution, amazing country, great family, I've had a whole slew of like boo-boos and screw-ups, like some small, some large here and there, but uh, I, I'm extraordinarily blessed and very, very thankful. So uh, I can't say, but yeah, I would probably take my, my STEM kind of uh, studies a bit more seriously. No, I think that's great advice. We all need to hear that, especially if you're in college right now. But John, we're thankful for the the string of experiences you've had. And, and thank you for serving our country so faithfully and, and sharing your experiences with us today. It's been it's been really great to talk with you. Hey, I appreciate it, Zach. Thanks for the opportunity and good luck with anything. You need anything, you know how to get in touch with me. Okay. Of course. Thank you. Okay.